John Loftness for our guests. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been going through the book of so Proverbs. Book of Proverbs as a series. And one of the reasons I want to emphasize that is because I know we're all aware that it's Father's Day. I want you to know I did not choose this chapter in light of Father's Day, okay? Uh, in, case, in case you were wondering. Uh, the topic of our chapter today is sex. Of the nine chapters that introduce Proverbs, two and one half of them deal with this topic. So according to Solomon, and the father who is speaking the words of Solomon as the teacher, we need a lot of wisdom about sex. The Bible is not shy about sex. It celebrates sex in marriage and condemns sex outside of marriage. In fact, all we need to know about, <laughs> about sex is found in the Bible. So this is, this is the manual you need. So, you know, we're, we're hearing people talk about sex, especially in the, in the mass media. It's a constant topic, and when people talk about it, even in common conversation, they often use crude or graphic language. Uh, they talk about sex explicitly, dress in ways that draw attention to what should be private. And so we need to recognize the contrast that we are called to. The Lord gave sex as a precious gift, an amazing gift, but it's to be enjoyed privately, not to be talked about explicitly, and to be enjoyed only between a husband and wife. When the Bible talks about sex, it uses discrete language. Genesis 4 says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. It doesn't go into any detail. Or the Bible uses metaphor and poetry, as we'll see in our text today, or in the Song of Songs. And so the Bible knows how to talk about sex in a real way, that is not crude or immodest or inappropriate in a context where we can all hear about it. We live, and I think all of us at least as adults know this, we live in an age that is obsessed with sex. Our media are plastered with pictures and stories that draw our attention to sex. Ours is a society that's deeply confused about sex. And we have degenerated to a place where our governments and many businesses invite us to take an entire month every year to celebrate what the Bible condemns as sexual sin. So there's a lot of confusion out there. And so before we get to the text, I, I, I just need to have a little introductory question that we need to ponder. And I've been surprised sometimes that even Christians don't get this. And that question is, what is sex 
for? The answer that the world today would give us is that sex is for self-fulfillment, for getting pleasure for yourself. It centers everything on the experience and tells you that this experience is fundamental to your happiness. It tells you that you can find this fulfillment in whatever way you want, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But here's how the Bible answers that question, what is sex for? This might surprise you. Sex is for making babies. <laughs> how do we know? After God created the man and the woman, it says he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God's intention is to fill the earth with his images, human beings, who can be the object of his blessing as they reflect his goodness in the way they live. So his blessing is to multiply. The world mocks us for believing the idea that sex is primarily for making babies. The world has done all that it can to separate sex from making babies. But in the Bible, the experience of sex and the gift of children are fundamentally connected. It's just like God to give a command. Be fruitful and multiply, and then to add joy and delight to the process. Separating sex from having children can lead to a cultural suicide. Now, think about this. What if everybody just said, you know, kids are a hassle. We're just not going to have babies anymore. In... 40 years, the youngest person would be 40 years old. And when his generation died out, the world would be without people. God wants to fill the world with his images. And he's chosen to do that through making babies. Already in the United States, we see this effect. Uh, our current population, as is true in Japan and China and Italy, uh, we're not and other Western countries, we are not reproducing enough children to replace our current generation. Well, my big point is that sex is a gift from God to be used according to his will and plan. And that plan is to keep sex private between a husband and wife committed to one another in marriage. And in the security of that bond... In the security of that bond, they can bear and raise children living in the delight of their marital union as they do the hard work of building a family, all to the glory of God. In the Bible, sex is not ultimate, nor is it necessary for living a fulfilled and happy life. It's simply a temporary blessing given to most of us so that we can fulfill the calling on humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Now, a lot of our chapter has to do with sexual sin, and I must say that sexual sin is not unique to our generation. The devil hates seeing the world populated with God's images, reflecting his glory in 
marriage, so he tempts us to distort sex and make it all about us, separating it from marriage and childbearing. So our chapter today warns the young man who is the object of his instruction to beware temptations to sexual sin, instead to put his attention on finding a wife and delighting in her alone. We're going to look at the chapter in six sections. And before we read, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would make us wise when it comes to understanding this created way that you've made for us in the world. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we pray that you would take the wisdom of this chapter and make it a part of each one of us as we live in this world and remain in the flesh and prone to temptation. And we pray that you would lead each one of us into the ultimate joy and happiness that come through Jesus Christ. We ask you this in his name. Amen. So the first section of the chapter talks about being wise to how temptation works, verses 1 through 6. Being wise to how temptation works. Let's read together verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding so that you may keep discretion and guard your and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword her feet go down to death her steps follow the path of Sheol she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. The father tells his son to pay attention. If you don't pay attention, you won't recognize situations where you will find yourself tempted. The son in verse 2 is to keep discretion. Okay, that's a word we need to understand. What is he talking about? Keeping discretion, because it's key to the whole chapter. The word discretion refers to the ability to think privately in a situation, to ponder what's really going on here, and to make a plan for how to respond. So you walk into a situation, in this case of sexual temptation, and you're able to think, okay, I recognize what's happening here, and I have a plan for how to respond. Part of your response will be to speak. Verse 2 says, let your lips guard knowledge. If you have discretion, you will be able to respond with the right words that are based on knowledge. Your words will guard you. They will protect you. Now, this is not the first time we've seen what's called here the forbidden woman. We were introduced to her 
in chapter 2, verse 16, we learn that she is an adulteress who has forsaken her husband and rejected God's covenant commands. The word in verse 3, forbidden woman, is literally strange woman. She's not a part of the community of God's people. She's a stranger to them. She calls the young man away from that community and its standards with the promise of better pleasures. In verse 3, she entices with her lips. And in verse 5, she leads with her feet. Her speech, like her kisses, drip with the sweetness of honey. She invites you to follow her on a path which she promises will lead to your delight. But in fact, her sweet words will prove to be bitter. Wormwood, verse 4, is a plant that was used in in a variety of ways. Its taste is intensely bitter. Ingest enough of it and it will kill you. It's even used today as a mosquito repellent. (laughs) Her words are smoother than oil, but the text says they will cut you to pieces like a two-edged sword. Now, one of the key things to recognize here as you're learning wisdom is that sexual sin often begins with sexual speech. It may begin with flattery about your looks and then lead to flirtation related to how attractive she finds you, inviting you to respond to her in a like manner. She tells you she needs you, that you understand her like no one else, especially not like her dullard of a husband. So what can begin as what seemingly is an innocent conversation starts to lead you down a path. Up until 100 years ago, such interaction had to take place through meeting face-to-face or through a handwritten letter. So we we got to see how important it is to take in the wisdom of this chapter because today the opportunities for sexual speech have multiplied. First through the telephone 100 years ago and now to texting and video chat and email and private messaging through social media. The opportunities for words and images intended to arouse desire are now everywhere we look, especially through the phones that are with us constantly. In verse 6, this strange woman is wandering through life, each step driven by her desire. She doesn't have goals. She doesn't know where she's going. Her only goal is to fulfill her craving to seduce the young man for her own pleasure. And so the father says, pay attention. Think with discretion. Respond to to flirtation by using speech that distances you from the enticement to sin. 
To follow this strange woman down the path, verse 5 warns, leads to death. What looks so attractive is actually deadly. Part 2, verses 7 and 8, give us wisdom as to what to do when tempted. How to be wise when tempted. Tempted. Let's look at those two verses. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Her words and her ways may excite you, but if God's word is lodged in your heart, you move away. Far away, verse 8 says. You know, it's very interesting when the Bible, whether it's the New Testament or Old Testament, when it talks about temptation in general, it usually says, stand firm. Having done all, stand. But in the face of sexual temptation, we are told to flee. This is what Paul tells Timothy. Flee youthful passions. So we're not to say, okay, I'm going to withstand this. No, got to move away. You remember the story of how in Genesis, Joseph was tempted by his Egyptian master's wife. First, she encountered, he encountered her smooth words and her invitation He has to speak to. She says, lie with me. He responds by telling her the truth. First, he tells her that her husband, his master, had entrusted him with everything he had, with one exception, and that was his wife. Then Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, he didn't have the option to quit his job. He was a slave. But she grabbed him, and he ran out of the room. Keep your way far from her, the father tells the son. Don't go near the door of her house. And so do you see how Joseph had discretion? He knew what to say. She spoke words to him. He let his lips guard knowledge. This is not only a great offense to your husband, but God will see, and God disapproves. Keep your way far from her. Shut down the social media account. Change your phone number. Stop going to that restaurant. And if necessary, it would be worth it to quit your job. That's what, he's, that's what the Father is saying. Don't leave yourself in that situation. Speak to it in the moment. Move far away. The next section tells us why this movement away is absolutely necessary. Section three, we need to be wise to where sexual sin can take you. Wise to where sexual sin can take you. Verses 9 to 14. 
Let's read again. So he's saying, keep far away from her, verse 9, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. I did not incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Now, before I explain the text, I need to say a few things about how people in this ancient culture understood marriage and sexual sin. Many in our society feel free to pursue sex with just about anyone. But because our society still has a lingering memory of Christian morality, people still frown on adultery. Adultery is when a married person gets physically involved with someone not his spouse. The New Testament word fornication refers to all forms of sexual sin. So in our society, fornication is okay, just not adultery. First, we're told before you get involved outside your marriage, you should get divorced. In the Old Testament, a young man would avoid fornication because if you did get intimate with an unmarried woman and you were discovered, you had to marry her and you would be forced to pay a lot of money to her father and he would decide how much. So there was a built-in terror of premarital sex. Beyond that, families in ancient societies were very protective of their unmarried daughters because they wanted them to marry well. And they were smart enough to realize that to protect marriage for your children was to protect the future. The lure of adultery was that you were less likely to get caught. And if the woman happened to get pregnant, she could always claim that the child was from her husband. Now we have a story in the Bible about this. King David tried to pass off the baby when he impregnated Bathsheba, tried to pass that baby off as her husband's. And he had to be confronted by God through the prophet Nathan. So he thought, this will be fine. Well, just, just between us, okay? Nobody else needs to know. Adultery is an assault on the very foundations of society. It destroys families, devours generational wealth, leaves children destitute and disillusioned. In the law of Moses, the maximum penalty for adultery was death, although there is no record of that being applied in the Bible. There could be other consequences. Now, verse 10 doesn't say it explicitly, but anybody in that culture who read this would know what it was about. 
Verse 10 says, let strangers take their fill of your strength. Okay, she's the strange woman. Other strangers are going to take your strength. Your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan. And the reason for this is that the husband of the woman can demand payment for the young man. She says, you did this with my wife? You owe me. And of course, the young man does not have much wealth. And so if he can't pay, he becomes the man's slave. How'd you like to have that person for your boss? Now, if you're a fool, you listen to this woman's, this strange woman's sweet words. You follow her down that easy path. And suddenly, you find yourself confronted humiliated and impoverished. Rather than building a household with a wife and children, you end up enslaved to the consequences of your adultery. Verses 12 through 14 depict living with regret and the shame of the entire covenant community that you came from hanging over you. Now, These are hard realities. And the Bible talks about life as it really is. And this is a warning to someone to avoid this. So obviously I'm preaching to a congregation where a lot of us are older and we understand and we've observed and maybe even experienced these things in life. And to that, We must remember there is grace available to those who have failed in this way. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? First, she was trying to avoid the reality of her life. And he told her, you've had five husbands and you're living with a dude now you're not even married to. But what he extended to her was forgiveness. Reconciliation with God. And that's what the Lord offers to all of us, this sin included. And though the consequences of this sin may prove to be more painful through a life, all our sins, when we come to Jesus Christ, are forgiven sins. And so we can't bear a shame before God if we have repented because he's forgiven us and removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Still, the consequences can linger. And we know that. All right, number four. So we go from this sad tale of this young man who is led by his desires because he didn't think about what was going on and what could happen to... Be wise to the blessing of marriage. Number four, be wise to the blessing of marriage. Verses 15 to 20. These are beautiful verses. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself 
alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? It's interesting to me as I engage with popular media that the world depicts the Christian as anti-sex. Apparently they didn't know this particular verse. Um, But in fact, we see sex for what it is. It is so precious a gift that it must be enjoyed only in the safety and privacy of a lifelong marriage. Something to be guarded, protected because it is good and precious. So the father is telling his son, get married, enjoy your wife. And that's only going to lead to further blessing. Enjoy another woman, and you get only poverty that leads to death. In verses 15 through 18, the father compares the son's life to water. In ancient Israel, water was precious. It didn't come through pipes. You couldn't pipe it from a reservoir or a river. It came from a spring on your property, from a well in your ground, from unpredictable rain. And so you would, when it came, you would store it in a stone tank called a cistern. The father appeals to his son, don't allow the precious waters of your life to be drained into the street. Instead, let these precious waters refresh You, your wife, and as a result of your union, bring children and blessing to another generation. Okay, so we've got to protect this because this leads to a beautiful and wonderful future. The deer and the doe of verse 19 would be, because sometimes we scratch our heads at these things, think, What's the deal with the deer here? Um, These would be depictions of animals who were known for their uh, lustrous beauty, their feminine form. I don't know if the word intoxicated in verses 19 and 20 is the best translation because the root word of intoxicated is toxic. And that implies that you are so drunk that you've lost your mind, you're out of control, you're sick. Uh, Other commentators use the word inebriated. But the idea is to give yourself totally to your wife in a way that leaves you swooning and giddy with pleasure. And so the father is asking, why seek this kind of an experience with another man's wife 
When God, God himself, will give you the same experience along with his blessing. With children then to fill your household. So, we're not against sex. But we celebrate the blessing of marriage. Number five, we need to be wise to the Lord's awareness. Really interesting that this is the first time we hear about the Lord in this chapter. Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. As King David learned through painful experience, you can hide nothing from the Lord. He watches you as you walk down the path, following the foreign woman to her bed that in fact is a trapdoor to your death. If you embrace the fear of the Lord, you are aware of his presence. You are aware that he sees and he knows especially when you're tempted. Now, in this chapter, the Lord, there's no mention of judgment and there's no mention of the Lord's intervention. He may not intervene in your path, but he's already spoken in his word. And if you fear him, you hide his words in your heart. Your memory reminds you of what he said. But if you refuse his wisdom, if you think, oh man, not a big deal. I've watched other people get away with this. I don't need to pay attention to this. It'll never happen to me. If you think that way, you will suffer the consequences. So the father does not mention God's judgment in this chapter. He just says the Lord sees. He watches you. The pain the foolish son experiences is a pain he brought on himself. And that's exactly what the last two verses of the chapter say. Verses 22 and 23. Read with me. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led Astray. So number six, we need to be wise to connect deed and destiny. Now, this is a key principle in the entire book of Proverbs. Is you need to make a connection between what you do and what can happen. You need to connect your deed to your destiny. So that's, a, that's just a key wisdom principle. A healthy marriage leads to life, a life of joy and the fruit of children. Sexual immorality leads to death, a living death in which you spend your wealth and your energy dealing with the consequences of your sin. If you see these connections, you'll avoid the deeds that lead to death and prepare yourself for those things that lead to to life. So that's chapter five. It's written to young men. 
either a young man who's newly married or is yet to be married. I think in this case, in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7, it's typically related to someone who is old enough to be married, old enough to have sexual experiences, but not married yet, hasn't found a wife yet. This is, in a narrow sense, for you guys. But you might ask, and it's a good question, does this apply to women as well? And I would say it applies to anyone who has matured beyond childhood. Now, in our society, remember I told you that the society of ancient Israel, very different in how men and women functioned within the society, within the family. In our society today, women are treated the same way as men. I have watched in my lifetime as women have fought to be considered no different from a man. And now we see that that often has led to their great harm. Fathers tend not to protect their daughters from unscrupulous men. They tend not to be looking to see who their daughter, who's drawing their daughter out, and they seek to lead their daughters into the company of good men and teach them, and if they will not learn, prevent them from relating to bad men. And a good father is able to tell the difference. So this chapter, and, and, and the other thing I would say is because our society, we've become this mass society, women are, can be especially uh, vulnerable to the pressures and seductions of men in school or the workplace. And this is going on all the time. So this chapter applies as much to young women as it does to young men. So ladies, learn discretion. Learn how to think, how to speak, how to act when that handsome young man tells you how pretty you are who tells you intimate details of his life and how he needs you to be his friend. Be wise when someone is seeking to manipulate you and cross physical boundaries that God forbids. Learn how to flee and prepare yourself for a good man who will bind himself to you in marriage and care for you as you bear and raise children. The principle of this chapter doesn't just apply to young men or by extension to young women. It doesn't just apply to adultery. It applies to all sexual sin. The consequences may not be the same as those related to adultery, but they can be just as painful. And so, uh, young people, as you're interacting with your parents about this, they will help you to see the connection play out in real life in the world that you live in. See the connection. Get wisdom. Learn to think in the moment of temptation. Okay, so we've gone from the young man with the strange woman in chapter 5, and we've broaden this a bit to say, no, it includes young women as well. In fact, it includes 
all of us, none of us are uh, uh, immunized against sexual sin. We must all be on our guard. But now I wanna, I wanna zoom out even broader to encompass the whole Bible. Throughout the Bible, God compares his relationship to his people to a marriage. And he compares idolatry to adultery. He offers his people the delight of knowing him and being fruitful in him if we will remain faithful to him. Maybe your life has been free from sexual sin, and if that's so, you need to thank God for this gift of grace and continue to pray, lead me not into temptation. But all of us have sinned against God. All of us have turned to idols. They may not be sexual idols, but material or reputational. And all of us deserve pain and eventually eternal death for our sins. So chapter 5 is just an analogy of a far bigger and more important world that we live in where we walk before God and he calls us to be married to him. God meets us in the misery of our spiritual adultery by sending his own son to fulfill all righteousness for us and then to die the death we deserve as the penalty for our sins. His payment completed on the cross, he then rises from the dead to take on a bride for himself. So do you see, this is much, much much bigger. This, you, you, you begin to look at a young man walking down the city streets, being tempted, and you, you see this in that, that microcosm, but it actually opens you up to see, I'm called to be a bride. I'm a part of the bride of Christ. There'll be no marriage in heaven because there's going to be a wedding and it's going to begin a relationship between Jesus Christ and his people. There's going to be a massive wedding banquet in the resurrection from the dead. This is the marriage we've all been longing for. Some of us in this room know the pains of marriage. We know that sex in marriage is not always easy. Some of us in the room know that, that there are consequences to sexual sin. We carry around the pain of that. Some of us have never been married. We need to recognize, all of us, that marriage on this earth is not ultimate. Okay, I've heard some evangelical preachers, and the way they depict marriage, it's like, I don't know, dude, I've had a few days like that, but... Uh, <laughs> Marriage is hard work. It's complicated. Two sinners get married and it multiplies the complications. Then you add children. They're sinners too. Only more. So it, it's the, the father in this chapter is speaking a blessing on his son, but he's not trying to tell us this, this is the whole picture. And that's because God wants us to yearn 
for something beyond what we know in this life. Marriage on this earth is not ultimate, but it's a faint reflection of what we will have with the Son of God forever. Marriage on earth points to our ultimate destiny, the marriage of the bride of Christ to her Lord. And so we mourn our sins and we live with gratitude for the forgiveness of sins and we rejoice in hope at a wedding to come. And we remember that our hope is rooted in the amazing grace of God, not our performance. This God who would send his son to die so he could marry us and cherish us today as his betrothed and then into eternity as his bride. Amen.